I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day, everyone, and welcome to Hard Yards in Leadership. One of the fun elements of being a podcast host is the process of being referred to and eventually meeting new potential guests. Well, occasionally the heavens move in strange ways, and my guest today is a guy called Neil Lowe, and I was referred to Neil through a mutual connection. But before I even spoke to the guy, I'd heard so many different other connections of mine rave about this guy, what a fantastic leader he is, da 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 you need to speak to this guy, who is Neil Lowe? Okay, so... Neil is one of those rare people who is such a wonderful leader that actually build a following. So I was really excited to speak to Neil. As for his journey, um, in his early days, Neil was a consultant with Boston Consulting Group. He did since at Expedia, Hotels.com and Seek, and before taking on the huge responsibility as head of growth at Airwallocks through their hypergrowth period. More recently, he's become CEO of Amber Electric. And when I chat with Neil, I'll be exploring some of the different hard yards from his journey, starting with his early days when he was first experiencing being a leader and he was just literally thrown in the deep end. I want to ask him about how not being critical enough at one stage caused real problems for him as a leader. I'll be asking about what happened when he hired staff who were misaligned with the company culture. And of course, this comes up so often um, in hard yards. So we look forward to his advice on that one. And then I want to explore the important choice he made when he had to manage a team but really doubted himself. And of course, that's something that we all do at different times. So finally, I want to ask Neil about his advice with how to find and use mentors. Neil's very into the whole mentoring concept, and I think we can learn a lot from his words of wisdom in that space. But without any further ado, welcome, Neil. Thanks for having me, Wayne. Pleasure to be here. Fantastic to have you on Hard Yards for Leadership. I've heard so much about you. You have come with uh, a very wonderful reputation from uh, from some of our previous guests, actually. So I've been looking forward to having this conversation. Yeah, thanks very much. So, Neil, let's jump right in. And I wonder if you could take us back to some of the early days of your career. And if you can think back to when you actually first realized that you were in a, in a leadership role, um, how did that happen? Yeah, so maybe maybe going back, you know, I um I come from a technical background. So I kind of did engineering at university, kind of came out, didn't really know what I wanted to do, didn't really want to join. I think I'm from Melbourne, so the big tech companies at my time were like Telstra's and Ericsson's and probably didn't excite me too much. So kind of started my career at BCG, so Boston Consulting Group, did that for two years and was lucky enough to go to London on a secondment. And then while I was in London, my secondment ended early and we had the option of either going back to Melbourne or staying in, in in the UK and we had just done two winters right like winter in Melbourne or winter in London and my wife is like I'm not going back to do a third winter so decision was made we decided to stay in in London and I was very lucky to actually join a tech company at that time so I joined a company called Expedia uh, which is pretty well known now but back then it probably was pretty small and little did I know that that was the start of basically online travel really picking off right so I think the brick and mortar stores were going to go out of business everyone's going to go online and I started off as an analyst, but I think because um, the growth was so substantial, basically within the two years I was at Expedia, I um, was offered a management position and hired my first team of, you know, I think around four or five people at the time. And that was essentially my first experience in management. I still remember being pretty nervous doing interviews and being like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, I have no idea what I'm looking for. And kind of just winging it, right? <laughs> Which I think is what a lot of first-time managers do. 
<laughs> That's amazing. That that literally is being thrown into the deep end, isn't it? So tell us a bit more about how you kind of how did you work it out? Because I guess even those people that you were interviewing, many of them would have probably been older than you, had lots more experience, all those sorts of things, right? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think I wasn't great as a first manager. I think in hindsight, and I kind of try to pass this on to new managers, in hindsight, the one thing I probably was, was I probably wasn't critical enough. I think in hindsight, one of the things as a manager and a leader is that you need to have pretty strong standards. So that my hiring was pretty mixed. I was pretty lucky to stumble upon a couple of people that I thought were pretty good, but then I also made a few hires that in hindsight probably weren't great hires. I think that's a real lesson for new managers is that like that consistency in hiring, that consistency in standards is something that you probably don't think of a lot. And my experience with new managers, certainly from my personal experience as well, is that in general, you're probably not critical enough. You're probably too focused on the people side and be like, I want to be a nice person. I want to be kind of give someone the benefit of the doubt in case they may not nail the interview or might not quite you know, nail a question. But I say most of the time that criticality is actually really important in leadership and in management because you want to build a team that has you know, high standards and from those standards can achieve great things. It's really interesting. And I'm just going to dive into that, into that space a little more if I can, Neil, because I think certainly some of the feedback we get from a lot of our regular listeners is, is the whole process of hiring and getting hires right is probably one of the things that stresses people out the most and people are constantly sort of saying, oh, I'm not good at this. One of the first things I say back is I was doing it for 30 years and I never thought I was good at it either. It's like something you continually strive to get better at. But I guess there's always this thing of like, are we hiring for skill or are we hiring for kind of attitude and culture? How do do you see those two things fitting together? Yeah, it's a really really good question. So I think uh, values and culture, I think in my mind, are critical things you have to look for, right? I think at most organizations, there's certain types of values that you have, whether it's around teamwork or individualism. I think you need to kind of make sure you're really aligned on that. I think some companies really value collaboration. So you need to make sure that people can work together as a team. Other companies are much happier to have people who can just kind of work by themselves, right? So I think that's really, really important. The second thing I think is a little bit different is the size of the companies. I've been lucky enough to kind of go into different size companies. I'd say that in smaller companies, especially startups, the one thing I look for the most is actually attitude and desire to learn because at startups, what you'll find is that processes aren't defined. Problems are very ambiguous. And what gets you to solving problems, actually someone that has a great attitude, is really curious, has great tenacity, and is not going to give up, right? So I find those traits really, really important and probably over-index on those versus previous experience because what you'll find is if people have a lot of previous experience, they'll just try to lift and shift what worked in those previous workplaces to the startup and generally that doesn't work that well. At larger companies, it's actually the opposite. At larger companies, I think what you find is that like generalists don't work as well as specialists. Like sometimes you actually try to hire for specialist skills for someone that's like done it before at a bigger company or kind of, you know, has seen it done somewhere else. Um, so sometimes you want to kind of focus a bit more on the special specialization and kind of skill sets for large companies. So it is actually quite different depending on the stage of the company you're in. But I think whether large or small, I think values still has to be the number one. You have to make sure that they're aligned from a value perspective. Otherwise, there does become this kind of like oil and water in the team. And sometimes it's these tensions that you just can't resolve, right? It's different working styles, different values, and that kind of just falls apart really quickly. Yeah, that's great advice. And and you know, again, I think so many of our listeners 
have personal experiences of, of having those oil and water situations where they bring people in thinking I've got the right person because they know what to do in this space, but they don't fit the culture. And I don't know, I mean, we're, we're going to kind of jump around, I guess, in terms of your career here, Neil, but like, do you have any any stories that you could share with us where you realized you had a situation that you had someone who was really just misaligned with the culture? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, like, so I worked at a at a fintech startup called Airwallex probably a, a few years ago, and and I'd say that was probably my first experience of being a real leader. Like I'd say before that, I was probably me managing teams of five to ten people. But Airwallex, I was given a great opportunity to build a team of probably like twenty to thirty people, so pretty pretty sizable. And the interesting thing there was that you did come across a few situations where you clearly could feel that there wasn't the right fit, right? Um, and in my situation, it probably was a little bit difficult. It probably wasn't new people we were bringing in. It was probably legacy people that had already been there, right? Maybe from a previous um, kind of manager. And they just were just like attitude challenges, capability challenges as well, but generally attitude, kind of, you know, desire to kind of solve problems, work well with, with others. And I think it was a really tough decision. It was probably my first time in my career where I probably needed to make some calls and probably essentially let people go. But I think in hindsight, it really helped the team. Like I think we kind of galvanized and realized that like, you know, they were probably making things a bit more difficult with them there. And then without them there, we actually kind of really helped grow the business and kind of kind of didn't have these kind of people issues or challenges or tensions I have to deal with. And my general advice in hindsight is like, as a manager and as a leader, when you get more experienced, you generally know when things aren't working out. And as a new manager, you always try to delay the decision and say, hey, maybe things get better. Maybe things will get better. As you get more experienced, it's just like, it's not going to work. Let's just nip it in the bud. It's painful now, but it will actually be a lot easier than trying to kind of resolve it over time. So that's kind of my big lesson over time. And in my current workplace at Amber, we actually did also have some challenges around values and behaviors. Um, and we did nip that pretty fast when I first got there. And I think we, we're in a much better place than we were. So let, let's just stay in this space. Neil, because I think this is this is a fantastic space just to explore a little bit. You mentioned about, I guess, two key things that I, I was hearing. One of them is um, as you've gone further in your leadership journey, you've realized that these are decisions to make earlier, not delay. So I want to explore that a little bit more. But the other one is you said you said about how other folks in the organization, and I guess I guess, you know, we often stress about like, if I let this person go, is everyone going to think, you know, I'm, I'm some sort of like, you know, demon and, or, you know, the, the baddie here or whatever it might be. But often what actually happens is others kind of come back and say, it's about time you did that. Is that the experience that, that you've had? Yeah, hundred percent. So I think on, on your, on your okay, second question, I think a lot of time as leaders, you do feel like, Hey, do I come across as someone who's a bit ruthless? But I think you realize that generally there's whispers already in the corridor around, hey, this is not working out. There's some weird things going on. And in a way, I think people respect you as a leader for being able to make some of these tough decisions. And generally, they see that they are the right decisions. And there may be pockets where people will question it. And maybe there's certain people in that team that were, you know, had a close relationship to the affected person. And they're probably things you just need to manage from a change management perspective. But I think by and large, when some of these tensions happen, there is respect when you're making some of these tough decisions rather than people thinking that you're kind of this, you know, evil person going around trying to like make people lose their jobs. So I think that's definitely my experience. Yeah. And the podcast is called Hard Yards in Leadership. And I think so many new leaders, founders, 
and leaders who've been doing it for a long time find the actual build-up to a termination discussion um, one of the hardest things they have to face. Does it get any easier? I don't think it does. I, I think it's always hard. It's always, you know, people and jobs, like it's hard, right? And you don't want to be in a position to have to do it. But also it's your job as a leader to make sure the team's healthy, that, you know, you're setting the team up for success. It definitely doesn't get easier, but I think there are processes in place that make it a bit more easy to follow. So I'm always very clear. I mean, in Australia, there's like employment law procedures you have to follow. It's always really important to give that person a chance for success and kind of have those honest conversations about here's some of the behaviors we're seeing, here's why they're not great, are you willing to change, right? And kind of give them that kind of clear guidance that like this is what we want from to change and then these are some of the things we are going to look for from a change perspective and then if those conversations continue to not go that well, then obviously you go down that path of termination. So that process becomes a lot cleaner as you do it more often and I think that helps a lot and then hopefully, you know, if you do need to do what you have HR uh, there to support you. But on a personal level, it's never easy, right? I think uh, it doesn't get as easier at all on a personal level. Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way. I, I think that literally the hardest conversations that you ever have to have as as a leader are when you're calling someone at your office to say, basically, it's time to go. And again, I have a lot of new leaders say, say oh, you know, I just find this so difficult. And my response was... <laughs> 30-something years later, I still did too. Yeah, I know, 100%. It just never gets easier. It never gets easier. But but I do think as a leader, you start understanding that you see the um, the benefits a lot clearer because you've seen the benefits in previous experiences. And so even though it's a difficult conversation, you know that in three to six months, the team is going to be in a better place, in a healthier place. I think that at least helps you rationalize that decision, right? Even though it's still emotionally can be quite quite challenging. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So let's jump back. I kind of, I kind of dove into into some of the content that you were sharing there, but I wanted to go back to, you know, those early days you talk, talked about at Expedia and the first time you kind of, you know, got your boss badge and and put that on. Do you remember the first thing that actually came along that really rocked your boat? You were like, oh my gosh, this is actually harder than I thought. Yeah. So I think I think I, I mentioned um, I probably made a couple of hires that weren't great, and as a manager, you live some of those consequences. So I had a hire. You know, we weren't that sure in the interview, but I think being a new manager, you always be like, oh, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I think in hindsight, like if, if you're not sure, you probably don't make the hire. But back then being a new manager, I was like, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And they came in and you could probably see from the first month that things weren't going to work out. Like just they weren't on the same page with some of the other team members. It was really difficult getting some things done from a work perspective. And I think I was, was kind of like an oh no moment. Like what do I do? Um, and obviously... I hadn't been through the termination process before. I didn't want to go there. But I think in a way I was lucky that I think the person in the role also realised that they weren't doing a good job. And I'd say that probably within three to six months they essentially resigned. Like they could just tell it wasn't working. So I probably didn't have to have too much of a tough conversation there. So in, in a way I probably got out of that a bit, bit easy. But it was a very tough moment as a manager. And I think it's those situations that make you realize, okay, hiring is really important. I really don't want to try to get it wrong next time because once you hire someone, if things don't work out, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty painful process. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And something I'm always interested to explore, most of us don't get a lot of leadership training before we suddenly find ourselves in a leadership role. How did you learn about leadership now? 
Yeah, so uh, it's a really good question. I do enjoy reading, so I kind of read a lot of stuff, and I'm a big fan of Twitter, so I kind of follow some people around leadership and kind of read about a bunch of tweets. But I'd say that a lot of my learning has been, one, thinking through good managers I've had in the past and also managers which I probably haven't enjoyed as much and really trying to understand why I liked working with certain managers and why I didn't like working with other managers. So for me, a lot of themes like, you know, a good manager was someone that gave me a lot of autonomy, gave me clear outcomes, but let me come up with, you know, the the way to solve those problems. The ones I didn't enjoy as much as probably the ones that were probably a bit more into the detail, kind of micro micromanaging. So one of my philosophies has always been like, I'm probably going to give my team a bit more space to work rather than getting too much into detail. It's kind of stylistically what I'm like. But the second thing I find is that a lot of it's just experience. Like I think when you're an individual contributor, like whether you're doing like, writing or marketing or coding or excel i think um, it's really easy just to do the task or read books and kind of get better at it i think with management you can read a lot of books but until you actually walk the walk it's actually really hard to improve and so the thing i tell a lot of my kind of new managers like you just need to do it right like bunch of goals bunch of resources bunch of constraints figure out how to solve it and over time you're just going to get better at it so i think a lot of it's just practice and I think a lot of new managers, probably including myself, have a little bit of imposter syndrome when you first do it. You're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. But the key thing is that a lot of people don't know what they're doing. So don't worry too much about it. I think just, you know, trust yourself, but then also make sure that you surround yourself with some supportive mentors and ask questions about certain situations or certain problems uh, that you face along the way. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. And let's just unpack that one a little bit more because I think often people hear the concept of, you know, having a mentor or having a coach but they don't fall from the sky. And, you know, your words were, you know, surround yourself, you know, with great mentors. And and how did you go about actually finding those people? Yeah, I was I was really lucky. I think when I was at Expedia, I mean, I don't know if it's like this with every company and maybe I was just young. I kind of had a lot of people I looked up to, but I just felt like I just had such a good management cohort like of peers and people above me. So I had a great CEO, a great exec team. And we were pretty lucky that there were these kind of big meetings where I could kind of see how they operated, how they kind of, you know, conduct themselves. So a lot of the, for me, was actually osmosis, watching how these more senior people worked. And then I also had the opportunity for a couple of these execs to have more like one-on-one time. So I kind of build some relationships with them and then kind of be very specific and kind of say, hey, I've got this situation. Do you have any advice? So I was really lucky internally to build a lot of that, that network. I probably haven't been able to build as much of a mentorship network externally. But I think internally within the company is always the easiest place to start. Like whether there's peers or kind of execs that you've worked with and you have good relationships with, they're always a good starting point. Um, and most people are really happy to give advice, right? They've kind of been through that journey. So a lot of it's if there's no kind of formal program, I think, you know, an email or a message saying, hey, do you mind having a coffee catch up? I've got a couple of things to, to bounce off of your questions. Do you mind if I have a chat? I think people are very open to kind of, you know, carving out that time. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I think there's two things that you mentioned there. One of them is actually just observing. And, you know, I think sometimes people go along to you know meetings and town halls and those sorts of things where the sort of the senior folks are, are on and they're kind of so focused on what's being communicated that they don't necessarily observe leadership in action, be it good or bad. And I think one of the great skills to develop is is that sense of almost kind of being able to watch something unfold in front of you from kind of two different camera angles. One of them is what are they saying? What messages do I need to be hearing? But the other is what's working? You know, gosh, they're saying something at the moment and everyone around me is hanging on every word or they've entirely lost the audience. How can they not see that? 
and what is it that they've done that's making that happen. Yeah, and that's a really good problem. I think in hindsight, I didn't realize I was consciously doing that, but I, I think I was. I always had the ambition to be a, a leader, and so I think I always looked up to these people. And as part of that, I just wanted to understand how they, you know, conduct themselves in certain situations. But you're right. I think that observability is really, really important, right? Like not just being in the presence and kind of just taking the content, but actually observing how they're managing the room, you know, landing the key messages, managing the dynamics, et cetera. And then you talked about, I guess, something that you were doing proactively, which is reaching out to some of them and saying, hey, you know, can I have a mentoring session or can I have a few words of advice or whatever it might be? And I don't know, my experience is whenever someone would put up their hand and and, and ask that, you know, you'd say, of course, but sometimes you don't think to to reach out, you know, when you're in the senior leader, leader chair, you don't think to, to reach out sometimes. So you've had good experiences by just doing that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there's a number of ways to, to approach it. I think when I was at Expedia, we talked about mentorship um, because the company was growing so fast. And so it was very easy to reach out and say, hey, like, do you mind like kind of being a quasi-mentor? And there was like an open conversation around it. I think that's a pretty, pretty easy conversation to have. If you feel like maybe it's less easy to have those conversations in certain workplaces, another way is just to have a coffee catch up and bring it up really casually, like have a regular lunch and you just kind of ping questions, right? They didn't have to like formalize it as a mentor-mentee relationship, but just having coffee catch-ups and just saying, hey, by the way, love to get your thoughts, have this situation, how would you deal with it, right? And those those coffee catch-ups are very common in, in all workplaces. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is a conversation, especially for kind of younger leaders in larger organizations and so on. We have a lot of those listen to the show. And they they sometimes feel that when they're in the presence of, you know, these kind of senior folks, that they kind of have to be impressive. They either have to have that really clever question or kind of like, you know, some great suggestion or whatever it might be. My experience is the vast majority of kind of C-suite people are just normal people. You know, they've just gone up through the ranks and that's where you kind of finish up. And when someone kind of comes and says, hey, can I just pick your brain a little bit or seek a bit of advice? You're not looking for them to be clever or to impress you or anything. It's just like, sure, like, you know, what, how can I help? And uh, Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's don't overthink it, right? Yeah, exactly. Don't overthink it. And I agree, like, you know, most execs, they they know what it's like, like, you know, climb, I'm not climbing, it's climbing the management ladder or whatever you want to call it. They're more than happy to give advice. Um, but they're also probably pretty time poor. And so I think for younger managers, the onus is really on them to seek that time with people. And don't feel like I, I, my advice, like if you want to learn, go go ask, right? Like you try to sit there and wait for people to tell you what to do. I think that's that's important. It's like you need to be able to take some initiative and kind of seek that time with people that you think might be able to help you. You're listening to Hard Yards in Leadership, where leaders share the stories of their hardest yards in their leadership journeys. I hope every leader who hears these stories recognises that the things that they find hard are the same things that the rest of us leaders find hard too. It's my dream that every leader finds the joy in leading. It will help you be a happier person, a better leader for your business, and a better leader for those that you lead. If you like the show, please subscribe, drop us a review, and most importantly, share to others who may benefit from it too. Now back to the show. Let's jump back into your career, Neil. And, and, you know, we're talking about some of the things that happened kind of very early in your leadership time. Let's jump in the little time capsule and kind of advance a chapter or two. You kind of a more established leader now, you've kind of been doing it for a few years. Can you think back to something that may have come along in that sort of mid phase of your career 
again, that kind of really like set you back in your tracks and was like, oh my God, how do I deal with this one? Yeah. So, I think, I think the, the main one is probably when I joined Airwallets. So, for those who don't know, Airwallets is kind of, you know, fintech, VC funded, fast growing. And I, and I joined the company as a head of growth role. So, my role was essentially grow the company outside of its core market, which was China at the time. So, focus on Australia and some of the Western markets, the UK, the US, Hong Kong. And it was something I've never done before. It was something I was very excited by the opportunity, but I've actually never done it. And, and it was pretty daunting trying to grow a business from scratch. Like I myself am not a founder by any measure. And that was probably my biggest challenge. And, and the CEO at the time was like, you can have what you want. You just need to grow the business. And so, it was a bit of, bit of pressure as well on that. And I think what I found as a leader back then is like the path wasn't clear. Right. I think in previous times you have a task. I think it's a lot, lot clearer. This was pretty ambiguous. I didn't really know what it took to grow a business. And I probably had no idea what it would take in the next three to six months. But you are hiring a bunch of people that have faith that you will be able to grow the business. And there was this really interesting dynamic where I probably didn't have like a lot of confidence, but you need, I knew that I needed to show a level of confidence to my team so they could trust me and kind of have the right work ethic and that was a really interesting time like I think it was the first time I'd kind of doubted myself but kind of didn't really know how to um, manage that right with the team like do you be really transparent if I be too transparent and people are just gonna be like he has no idea what he's doing and lose faith and that balance was really difficult for me to navigate so that was probably the, the biggest crisis in leadership that I had kind of mid mid career yeah. and so how did you work through that? Yeah, so I think in hindsight, I think my kind of main message to the team was, I think it's important to show a bit of vulnerability. So I said, look, I don't know what's going to work, right? I, d- I don't think there is a silver bullet. But what I do know is that if we try a bunch of things, measure, impact, have fast iterative feedback loops, then I'm confident that we will get to where we need to get to. And so what I try to do is really systematize and set up a process. So each month, we're going to get together as a group. We're going to talk about what we did, what we learned, come up with some new ideas and try next month, right? And I think there was a level of faith that I'd hired the right team with the right curiosity, the right attitude, the ability to deal with a bit of ambiguity and kind of problem solve that we were going to get there. I'd say the journey still wasn't easy. I think in, in the first three months, we didn't grow by much. In the first six months, probably not much more. And, you know, you kind of start losing a bit of faith. But I think by month nine, that's when we started seeing growth, right? And and it's one of those things where once you start seeing growth, it really builds momentum. People are like, hey, this is really exciting. I can see what I'm doing is impacting growth. We made it very clear, like, these are the things we think are working and we kind of double down on that. And basically within 12 months, the business was growing really, really well and really comfortably. And I think by that stage, the team then starts to have a lot of faith in you as a leader. You build confidence and I think it becomes a lot easier to kind of make the right calls then. But that early stage is really hard where you kind of, in a way, almost have a little bit of kind of bravado, right? But you haven't really seen the fruits of that. And that's always a really challenging time. And my main advice, if you ever find yourself in that, is kind of trust the process, like really figure out what a really good process is, trust the process, but be a little bit more flexible on what you're working on to really try to figure out what's working and what's not. And then once you kind of figure out what works and you really double down on that, and hopefully the numbers can reflect that as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So, Let's unpack a little bit of that because as I was you know, hearing you, you share that that story, Neil, one of the first things you talked about when you realised that you kind of, you did lack some confidence was that you realised you needed to be vulnerable and not project 
something to the rest of the team that was completely disjointed from the reality of the current situation. You know, again, this is something that I hear so often new leaders, founders, and people in all sorts of different situations, they struggle with that. Is it okay to be vulnerable? And I'm fascinated in your views on on when it's okay to be vulnerable and what is the power of being vulnerable. Yeah, I think I think um, certainly growing up, I feel like, and I don't know what it's like kind of different generations, but I feel like in my generation, a main theme of that leadership is that vulnerability kind of and, and being candid as a leader. And I think sometimes if you're not vulnerable, people can see it. Like, like people can see things that are sometimes not true, right? And so even if you're faking it, it's just not that helpful, right? So I think that vulnerability is important to show people that you're human, you relate to them, you know, you can have crisis in faith just like everyone. So I think that's important. But also you want to kind of balance that vulnerability with some level of direction to the team, right? I think there's a difference between vulnerability and kind of not providing direction. I think as a leader, whether you're vulnerable, whether you kind of don't know whether something's going to succeed or not, as a leader, your role is to provide clear direction to the team. Like, this is what we're doing. This is what we're working on. Um, so I think even if you are vulnerable, that's fine. But I think you still, as a leader, have to provide strong direction and say, hey, I don't know if this is going to work, but we're going to try this and then let's reassess in a month and then we can change direction if we need it. That's really important rather than being like, I don't know what's going to work and I have no idea what I'm going to do. Uh, we're kind of lost. Like that's probably not the right message uh, for the team. And that's, I think, where you also mentioned before that, you know, when you don't yet know the answer, you focus on the process and you trust the process. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's a, a great learn for people listening that, you know, the very nature of innovation you know, whenever you are innovating, by definition, you don't actually know the answer. You're trying to solve something that, you know, we haven't done before. And then it's not something to be fearful of. That's like, I'm the boss. I'm expected to know the answer. The fact is there isn't an answer. We're going to try and find one. And, you know, my sense is just listening to you and sort of from my own experience, again, that, that showing conviction to the process. And you talked about kind of being, being prepared to fail, fail fast, learn from that, iterate, et cetera be curious, keep being curious, that in itself is direction, isn't it? Yes, exactly, 100%. And I think in, in hindsight, what I've noticed is that that has been very part of that my success as a leader, specifically in that situation, but I think even in, in kind of more recent situations, is having that process is really important. And I think it's kind of key components that process, but I think you know, fundamentally that feedback from your team is really important because you're just not going to be across all the detail and you really want your team to give you insights, give you feedback and also drive a bit of ownership on that. Um, I think the second piece is like certainly around growth in general, but kind of more like a startup situation, that process has to involve your customers. Right? You have to go out and speak to customers and understand what do they like about your product, what don't they like about your product. Does this resonate? Why aren't they signing up, Right. What's causing them not to sign up? What's causing them to sign up? So all those insights are unbelievably useful in trying to solve the the bigger problem of how do you grow a business? And I guess, Neil, as I listen to, to you describing kind of those conversations, I mean, there's two themes that come out from that. One of them is customer centricity. And, you know, again, that can be a flag that people kind of just wave around, don't really know what it is. But, you know, every, every business survives or fails based on their ability to deliver successful outcomes for customers, serve them and meet their needs, right? So working in large organisations, one of the things that constantly frustrated me was how much time people spent reading reports about the customers rather than actually going and speaking to them and asking them things for themselves. But if we hold that customer centricity kind of in our left hand and then 
the sorts of conversations you you described, they are curiosity-driven conversations. They are ask the big questions and just listen. You know, they're not sell conversations, are they? And I guess I'm just interested in your views on kind of how that customer centricity and that curiosity kind of comes together in that space. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's super important. So I think for me, number one is like, as a leader, you need to set an example. So I think for me, I realized that talking to customers was so important that I need to lead from the front. So I actually went on a lot of calls, right? Calls with customers to, to listen to their problems as well as potentially selling our solution if it, if it fit, right? So I think that's number one. I guess leading by example is super important, especially when you don't feel like the behaviors may have been really set, right? So there's a, there a very clear risk that we could do a bunch of stuff, but we don't talk to customers, it probably was going to fail. And so I was like, I need to lead it from front. That was kind of number one. And I think number two is, because we're very early stage startup, a lot of the customers that we were getting were probably like early adopters. And so in a way, you probably didn't need to like sell too hard. They were really excited by the fact they could be adopting a new technology or a new product. So one is just making sure you find those early adopters. And then two, just making sure there's a really kind of um, open channel for them to kind of give you feedback. Because these early adopters, they love new products. They love giving feedback and be able to shape their products. So, you know, there were customers emailing me directly saying, hey, I like this, I don't like this. I was solving like customer support tickets, right? But that is so important from a cultural perspective to build that into the team culture. And it really creates that kind of customer centricity, the curiosity, the, the really tight real-time feedback loops, um, et cetera. Nice, nice. All right, back to the time machine. We're, we're going to move from the center part of your career to kind of more recent times. We'd all love to say that, you know, as we grow up as managers, there's no more hard yards anymore, but my guess is there probably still are. So what are some of the things that you kind of still find hard, like think of, you know, the last year or two? Yeah, it's really interesting. So I think it's interesting. So in the last year or two, I think we've had to deal with a lot of the issues I've probably learned through my career. So we've had challenges around values and culture. We've had to probably manage, you know, a person out of the team. So kind of had to, you know, use that experience. And it was interesting. I kind of was, instead of kind of directly doing it, I was probably advising someone. So it was a little bit of a different dynamic, but I was able to kind of impart a lot of my thoughts and kind of my previous experience. I think they learned a lot from from that experience. The second is also I'm in a role where I'm probably less close to the customer from a growth perspective and more from an operational perspective. So again, it's kind of trying to influence the, the growth function, saying, hey, it's important to talk to customer, really talk to customer, figure out what's working, figure out what's not working. So it's interesting that I've learned a lot of these things, but now I'm in a role where I'm playing a little bit different role in the team. And so a lot of it's been about influencing leaders around me around some of the things I've learned previously. So there's just an interesting dynamic seeing some of those things at play. So I say that like, you know, I haven't probably had something completely different come up, but I've seen previous patterns in the past that I've been able to kind of use experiences to help others in the team. Yeah. And how were the COVID years for you, like in terms of like steering the business through and, and dealing with the challenges of that period? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. So I think, I think COVID was really tough because obviously you weren't seeing people in the office, right? And as a leader, certainly one of the, I think one of the things great leaders do is not just be able to get a sense of the team through the interactions on a, on a work basis, but also reading body language, right? And I think um, online it's much harder to get a pulse check of energy in the office, you know, conversations that people are having, whether things are going well. So that was really hard. And in general, you felt that people were a little bit burnt out. Right. So I think as a leader, it was quite important during the COVID years to make sure there was an emphasis around mental well-being, not burning out, taking the time they needed to spend 
with family and friends, but also decouple from work. And I think I personally felt the challenge where as soon as you have work at home, the boundaries get quite blurred. And it wasn't until COVID happened that I realized I really appreciated the commute to and from the office because it kind of allowed me to decouple work from home. And as soon as you're working from home, that decoupling made it a lot harder. And I felt like after dinner, I was still checking emails and going on my computer and couldn't quite switch off. So I think that was a really challenging time. And I think as a leader, it was about empathy, right? And it was about really trying to make sure that people took care of themselves from a, a well-being mm, perspective. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, first of all, the decoupling piece. I mean, I, you know, personally, I was in Singapore through most of the COVID years and, and um, doing the breakfast table to desk, which was about eight seconds, just didn't give me that kind of space of kind of transitioning and I recognise that so many people that I, I was working with were dealing with the same thing, but also they were there were a lot of people who were suddenly trying to work from home while their partner was working from home while they were bringing up two children. They had a dog, a cat, and a, and a, and a living grandparent, and all in a two bedroom apartment. And you just go, I don't know how you cope. You know, it's extraordinary what people coped with through that period. But it was tough. Yeah, right? it was just a very unique and tough period, right? Yeah, yeah. And finding just constantly drawing on that empathy was. Uh, you know, ultimately the thing that we were all trying to do, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, Neil, I have a fun little space now that I like to go in, into toward the end of our interviews. And so just work with me here. So I want you to think that you're uh, at your regular workspace. You look up, there's a, there must be a wall or a, a window or something. I'm now going to give you a bucket of paint and a paintbrush and you get the opportunity to write some words because you're writing them in paint. They're going to be there for you to see every time you look up. What do you write Oh, that's a good question. I did Latin as a as a kid. And I remember one of the first phrases I learned in Latin was carpe diem, which means seize the day. And it is something I think about a lot, like, you know, each day as a leader or as a, as a person in general, right? Like, you know, making sure that you make the most of it. So I'd probably write that carpe, carpe diem, seize the day. Nice. That's a great message to give to everyone. The concept is is so simple yet so, so powerful, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Neil, just before we tag out, do you want to just share with folks kind of, you know, what you're about these days and where they can find you, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm currently working at Amber, which is a green retailer, so uh, a startup, Australian startup. So, I've been there for about a couple of years now and my role is looking after the operations and, and product side of things. So, really enjoying that. And I think in general, certainly at this stage of my career, I'm very passionate about the tech space and the startup space. Um, so, hoping to continue to be involved in that in that space. And I think if you're going to find me anywhere, I think LinkedIn is pretty easy. So, you know, feel free to look up my name, you know, shoot me a message or, or connection. I'm happy to kind of be yeah, kept in touch uh, through LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thank you. And Neil, I, I think um, anyone that's looking for a, a mentor, I don't want to uh, now suddenly introduce you to thousands of mentors, but I think anyone who's looking for a mentor who can uh, share some practical advice on, on leadership, you could, uh, you could do a lot worse than tapping Neil and, uh, and inviting him for a coffee or a virtual coffee at some stage. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm very happy to chat to anyone that just wants to, you know, pick, pick my brains. I've been there, so I, I understand how, how useful that can be sometimes. That's well. awesome. Neil, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for being on Hard Yards and Leadership. I've learned so much from you and enjoyed our conversation and wish you well in your time at Amber and whatever comes after that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Wayne. Thank you for your time as well. I really enjoyed myself as well. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn 
You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do, and keep believing in yourself as a leader. Oh,